Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness night. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. Then God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And evening passed and morning came, marking the second day. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so dry ground may appear. Then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant, and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. And evening came and passed, and morning came, marking the third day. Then God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. Word of the Lord, you can be seated. Thank you, Rick. <laughs> so glad to see so many esteemed guests in the room, St. Augustine, Bonhoeffer, Dallas Willard, even Stephen Furtick. Thank you, student section. I just want to give a shout out, by the way, to everybody who chose a table, the, the scribe, what do we call them, the scribe tribe? Scribe tribe. Now look, this was my idea. Thank you. Thank you. Now look, my goal is for that energy to take the whole room. 
All right, by the end of this Bible series in this year, I want tables that I want, like I want everybody. So, okay, if you're a note taker, if you're gonna bring your Bible with you, any of that, this is your section you want, okay? I'm already gonna tell them to add another section of tables next week and we'll see what we can turn this thing into. Now, um, real quick, let's, uh, let's just put this into context. I know Tamara spoke about this earlier, but I, I want everybody to read these top two lines together with me. Can you read them with me? Here we go. We will be a congregation who knows, honors, and reads the Bible. One of our 10 vision targets for the next five years is to cultivate biblical literacy and love among our church. We want this to be true of you. Or in street talk, we want you to be able to say, I grasp the story of the Bible, I respect it as authoritative, I know how to read it, and I actually read it. Because we believe the word of God is, well, it's his word. It's inspired by him. So in order to do that, Stretched out over 15, uh, over the course of this year, we're gonna have 15 Bible study weeks. We're gonna have three over the next three weeks. We're gonna have some in May, summer. We'll do it in the fall. We'll do it again in the winter, right? And the goal is each week to cover about one book of the Bible. We're gonna, it's gonna take two for us to cover Genesis. We're gonna hit Exodus and Deuteronomy on the third week in one. We'll cover about one book of the Bible. And then at the end of this year, not only will you be competent in 15 books of the Bible, like you'll be able to open your Bible to these books and know the main themes, know kind of what it's about, navigate it, read it well. But you'll also know the macro arc of the story of Scripture. Because we've hand-selected these 15 books to take you literally from Genesis to Revelation. Now, the good news is, is that I got a new toy to facilitate this process, which I'm so excited about. Okay? And, and I'm gonna give you guys just a couple pieces of advice because I know we got some freshmen in the room, all right? So, <laughs> freshmen, this is what I would tell my freshmen. Freshmen, one, take notes. Take notes. That's why we have journals. I think you guys got them all. Like, you finished them all this week. We'll get more. We'll get more for you, all right? Bring your own journal. Grab one of our journals. Handwrite your notes. Did you know that handwriting notes actually increases retention dramatically? The studies are in. So take notes as we talk. Uh, second, read the textbook before and after class. The textbook, if you know what I mean. For example, the next two weeks we're covering Genesis. Genesis takes about three and a half hours to read. Spread it out over two weeks. Let's knock this thing off so that you know what we're teaching on whenever I get to it. Um, our team has done, and I can take very little credit for this, our team has done a fantastic job of creating a, uh, a resource page for you. Uh, NECchurch.org, let's see here. I'm gonna put backslash, ooh, let's get it to the marker here. This is so cool, guys. Backslash resources. So, oh, what did I do there? Back here. Backslash, there we go. I'm still figuring it out, all right? Backslash resources, our homepage, slash resources. And uh, what you'll find there is on each book that we cover, hundreds of hours of next level content for you to go as deep as your little scribe tribe nerd heart desires. Now, here's something else we did. You can throw the graphic on the side screen. Uh, this is the same page series. So our kids are studying this stuff too at the same time on the other side. They're studying Genesis the next three weeks. 
So we came together and go ahead and pull your phones out. I'm gonna get, this is the only time I'm allowed you to pull your phones out. If you have a kid, especially an elementary age kid, anywhere from four years old to sixth grade, adults, high schoolers, you'll love this as well, trust me. But if you got a young kid, we've created a podcast called The Preacher and the Piano Man Podcast. I'm the preacher. Trevor Marshall, our youth worship pastor, is the piano man. And basically, it's a fun podcast where I tell a story of the Bible. Trevor asks really ridiculous questions that will make you laugh. There's sound effects, all sorts of silliness. And then at the end, he writes a song based on the story that I just told. Does anybody remember um, Silly Songs with Larry from VeggieTales? Let's go. It's the, re it's the 21st century remake, people. So millennials live it up, okay? This is your chance. Right, I'm serious. Subscribe to this. Each episode is about 15 minutes. There's nine of them. Okay, and it's perfect before bed to talk Bible with your kids or maybe on the commute to or back from school to talk and pray through the Bible with your kids. Incredible resource. I have never been more excited about creating content at Northeast than I was about that podcast. I'm just saying. Last thing, freshmen, bring positivity. Bring positivity to the classroom. The Bible, well, it's what you make of it. If you bring energy, if you bring focus, if you're like into it, then you'll get something out of it. If you're not, you'll be snoring by minute 23. And if I hear you snore out loud, which has happened before, if I hear, I will walk off stage and wake you up. And there's cameras broadcasting to the world. I will say, camera, follow me. Wake up, all right? And it will be documented for everyone to see from here until Jesus comes back. Okay, so are you ready? Yeah. Energy and positivity, are you ready? Yes. Who wants to read the Bible? Yes. All right. I love the student section. Scribe tribe. I mean, okay. So let's get to it. First, Genesis is the book of beginnings. What is Genesis? Genesis. Yes. Very good. I love the energy. Look at y'all. It's the book of beginnings. It's our origin story, if you will. It's grandpa pulling out the rocking chair, grabbing like the family photo album or the family tree off the shelf, <laughs> sitting down and saying, now come here kids and let me tell you about who you are. <laughs> now let me ask you a question. When grandpa tells you the story of the family, is it like a history textbook that you read in history class? The answer is no, okay? No, he doesn't hit all the details. He doesn't tell it like a journalist. He's not unbiased. He leaves some details out because they don't matter. And he even overemphasizes, perhaps even exaggerates other details because he really wants to get the point across to you that this is what our family's about. This is who we are. If you're one of mine, if you're one of ours, then these are the kind of people that we will be. This is what Genesis is to us as humans, to the people of Israel, and to us as the spiritual ancestors of Israel. It's our origin story. It answers one of the deep longings of the human heart. Where did we come from? Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, over the last, like, last 40, 50 years, there has been an incredible amount of, of energy and interest around origin stories in film. Have you noticed this? You have The Godfather 2 and Don Corleone's origin story. You have Revenge of the Sith, which is not one of the best Star Wars is. Okay, but, but, but in it, we have the origin story of Darth Vader. 
Oh, you have the rings of power on Amazon and the origin story of Sauron, no Gandalf. No Sauron, no Gandalf. Who is it? I'm not gonna tell you. No spoilers here. You have Batman Begins, the origin story of Bruce Wayne. Or you have my favorite origin story of all time, because I have three children, Monsters University. The origin story of Sully and Mike's epic relationship. It's the first amen. I like it. So again, here's what I'm saying. Basically, basically, Monsters University is Genesis. Like Genesis is the Monsters University for Israel. And don't you love it? Now, a quick outline uh, for you. A quick outline. Let's go here. Uh, um, let's go previous slide. No. I'm going to do this. Watch this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, if you were to outline Genesis, scholars would tell you to do it in one of two ways. Uh, they would either tell you to do it based on the toledots in the text, which we'll get to in a second. Toledot is just basically a transition statement. And there's 11 of them through Genesis that sort of cuts the text up into 11 different generations or 11 different stories. I think a better one, a more helpful one though for us is to, uh, is to outline the text based on geography. There's four geograph uh, geographical uh, checkpoints here. Uh, the first one is uh, Eden. That's where the story starts. Genesis 1 through 3. One thing you will find out over the course of this series is that I have terrible handwriting. The second one is, uh, is what we would call outside Eden. Outside Eden. And this moves from uh, like 4 1 to 11 26. Next checkpoint is in Palestine. This is when we get Abraham and we really zone in on the story of Israel, 11.27 to 37.1. And then last historical or geographical location is, anybody? Egypt, right? Joseph takes us to Egypt. And that goes from 37.2 to Genesis 50. And we'll check out more of that uh, next week. Now, uh, today, today, as you, as you move from Eden to Egypt, what you'll see is that the story moves from like 50,000 feet, let's talk about the creation of the universe and human beings as a species, and it starts zooming in more and more and more towards the actual specific origin story of a specific people, the people of Israel, and why they matter, and how God uses them, the covenants that he makes with them. But we're gonna cover all that outside of Eden and beyond next week, today, because these two chapters are so full of debate and because these two chapters are so foundational to theology, I wanna focus on basically Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story. All right, now, um, watch this, learn that. Hope you got it. <laughs> can't bring it back. I don't know that move. All right. <laughs> now, Rick came up and he read for us uh, um, Genesis 1 to 2, 4, basically, an excerpt of it. And uh, that is creation story number one in Genesis 1 and 2. Did you know that there are actually two creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2? There are two. It's not just actually one hodgepodge creation story. There are two distinct different stories. 
You can actually see them. See them. Oh, okay. Okay. We'll figure you out. You can see them separated out here in verse 4. This is where verse 4 starts. This is verse 3. Um, this is where verse 5 starts. So you can see them separated out here by verse 4, this transitional statement. Story number one ends on the seventh day. God blesses it and rests. We get a transitional statement, the first toledot, if you will. These are the generations of the heaven and earth and they created. And then you get another introductory statement to story number two. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Do you see? Now, here's what you need to know, okay? Story number one goes from... Uh, See here, it goes from uh, one one to two four, and uh, it is about the cosmos broadly. It's about the creation of the universe. It doesn't focus on humans specifically. Uh, humans get their day, day six, and it shows us how image bearers fit into the larger whole. But it's actually the big picture of creation. That's story number one. Story number two comes in at uh, two four through chapter three, and it begins to zone in more on humans and their story. It would be like grandpa telling you the first story of here's how the universe was created and you saying, grandpa, that's really, really cool. Can you tell me more about the humans though? Because I don't know, they seem kind of relevant to me. And he's like, oh, well, let me tell you about the humans. And then he transitions to story number two. See how this works? In story number two, we see Adam created. We see Eve created. We see Adam begin to work. We see the first command given. We see the first sin. We see how God and humanity relate before and after sin and so much more about the human story. Uh, now, you can't call, historians don't call these grandpa stories. That's not, a, that's not an appropriate genre for the classroom even though you kind of get it, right? So I want to show you what the nerd word is for this. Do we get that in? Okay, here we go. Oh, here's the toledots. Nice. So like if, if those, for those of you who are interested, here's the 11 toledots. We didn't have it in last service. I was like, can we get it in? And we got it, right? So here's all the toledots outlined for you. Quick snapshot, three, two, one. All right, yeah. Now, the nerd word for grandpa stories is this, cosmology. Cosmology, all right? Logi means the study of. Cosmo means, no, this is not the study of how to craft cocktails, East Louisville. Cosmo means cosmos, okay? Cosmos, the study of the origins and the development of the universe. Now, uh, here's what's interesting. Over the course of, uh, you know, like the last 3,500 years, the way that we talk about cosmology has changed. Like if, if Moses were on the stage or a Pharaoh or an ancient Babylonian were up here and you were to ask them, tell me about the origins and the development of the universe. They would talk about cosmology, the ancients, in terms of theology. They would tell you about the gods and how they created the heavens and the earth. Now today though, 
in the modern world, if we were to ask uh, somebody, you know, hey, tell me about the creation of the universe. Tell me about uh, how this came about and developed. They would talk about it in terms of what? Yes, the sciences. We would hear about astronomy. We would hear about physics. We would get historical timelines and all, all the works, right? Now this right here, this is why I'm pointing this out here. This right here is where most of the argumentation and debate today around Genesis 1 and 2 is rooted. This difference right here. We want to talk about science. And the Bible wants to talk about theology. Okay, we, we want to... We want to know, hey, did God use evolution? To which Genesis answers like this. <gasps> well, but, but how old's the earth, Genesis? <gasps> Genesis has no opinion. Like, what about cosmic expansion and radiocarbon dating, Genesis? Genesis, how did Noah get the dinosaurs on the ark? <laughs> We're asking a 3,500-year-old pre-modern science textbook or a theology book to be a 21st century textbook, y'all. We're using it wrong. Here's a great hermeneutical principle for you, okay? Um, let the Bible answer the questions it's trying to answer. Don't impose your questions on it. Figure out the questions it's trying to answer and then let it answer those. And you'll be just fine. But let us stop asking a theology book for scientific answers. It doesn't aim to give because it's just creating a lot of confusion and unnecessary debate. Now, you want to know where the whole argument got hot? Dayton, Tennessee. Anybody been to Dayton, Tennessee before? Didn't think so. Small mountain town in, in country Tennessee. Um, it actually started um, in a courtroom, but even, even earlier than that, in a classroom, a biology classroom. The biology classroom of John T. Scopes. John T. Scopes broke Tennessee law in 1925 by teaching evolution to his biology students. And the whole thing blew up in court in front of the watching eyes of not just America, but the entire world. Now in this corner is William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan was the public defender that represented the state of Tennessee and thus, by default, represented the position that the Bible has no room for evolution. Both of these public defenders, or both of these uh, lawyers here, as you've seen in a second, um, were caricatures of their constituencies on purpose. So Jennings was a, uh, he was a Southerner, he was a man of faith, and he had a thick Southern draw. In this corner was Clarence Darrow. Clarence Darrow defended John T. Scopes. Clarence Darrow was hired by the ACLU, and thus, by default, Clarence Darrow was fighting for the position that evolution has no time for the Bible. 
Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, if you read the historical records, what you'll see is that Brian actually won in court. He won the court battle. But Darrow, he won the battle for public opinion, which can oftentimes be just as important. Because see, Brian made a mistake, I believe, in his pride. Brian allowed Clarence Darrow, one of the greatest trial lawyers of his era, to question him. Brian put himself on the stand and gave Darrow permission to question him, a lawyer, on the historicity and accuracy of the Bible accounts. Now, one of the things we can do when we are an expert in one field or we're a really, really good leader or we get power and fame because of our expertise in this arena is we start to believe that we're smart in all of them. We start to believe that I got it all figured out. I can speak to any of this, right? Only problem is that's not true. And so Brian got destroyed on the stand. He wasn't a theologian. He wasn't a Bible scholar. Uh, scholar. He was a lawyer, right? So what ended up happening was these court proceedings didn't actually bring peace or resolution to the problem. They created a war, a culture war. And today our culture wars are over things like abortion, racism, human sexuality. But 100 years ago, the culture war was over things like evolution and evolutionary theory. And so we're still feeling the ripple effects of it 100 years later. No? Science or scripture? Choose. Facts or faith? Choose your side. To which I say, bleh. Like the whole thing is unnecessary. It's a false dichotomy. Because Christianity actually teaches from the Bible that you can look for truth from all of them. From both of them. Okay, so here are the three main sources of divine revelation um, according to Scripture. Okay? Uh, according to Christianity. Ooh, I don't like that. Undo. Ha! I'm going to figure this out. There's so many features this thing does that I don't even know about yet. Y'all wait till we get to May, okay? <laughs> We're going to pull up my Netflix subscription. I think it can do that. Um, okay, first, first source of divine revelation is the way. I've, I've got three W's here for you just because I'm a preacher, okay? The way, or, or Jesus. This is the ultimate source of divine revelation. In a theology classroom, we might call it special revelation. Jesus is the best revelation we have of God, period. God in the flesh, incarnation, Emmanuel. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 outlines that well for you. Second source of of Revelation, which is not quite as good as the first one, but very, very, very good, is the Word, Scripture, Biblical Revelation. We see that all Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Third source of divine revelation we have is what I would call the world, or science, general revelation. Scripture itself says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that when we look at the natural world around us, the physical sciences, we can actually see the invisible attributes of God. You see the creator in creation. Now, um, while Genesis 1 through 2 is not a science textbook, I do believe it's very, very important to say that, um, that it does make one 
significant scientific fact. It's one significant scientific statement. Somebody know what it is? Fundamental. God did it. It was his fault. <laughs> he did it. He is the one behind all of this that you see. And this is, this is a core truth in the creation story. The biggest evidence here, and there are many evidences for God as the creator or an intelligent designer, many. But the best evidence is the argument from first cause. The argument from first cause. Uh, or said in a question, who banged the bang? Science has to reckon with that. It does. It has no answers for it. This is a picture of Edwin Hubble. Um, Edwin Hubble is the one who came up with the Big Bang Theory, which basically says about 13.8 billion years ago, there was a singularity like ball of supercharged matter that was many trillion degrees and it um, exploded, boom, Big Bang. And from that random chance explosion over the last 13.8 billion years, we have seen all the beauty and order and intelligibility of our planet and all the other ones out there come forth. Basically, we got order and beauty from chaos without any intelligent designer guiding it. It's difficult for me to put my faith in personally. Probability of that is infinitesimally small. Now, what's interesting is that uh, Hubble's Big Bang Theory was actually uh, confirmed by uh, some interesting findings by the Cosmic Background Explorer Satellite, what they call COBE, C-O-B-E, COBE, um, uh, which gave stunning confirmation because it, it measured the cosmic microwave background radiation of the universe. Basically, the universe is expanding and they can put math and reverse the timeline to figure out when it started or how old it is, when the explosion happened. So uh, let's grant them that it all started 13.8 billion years ago with a big bang. We're still left with the question. Who banged the bang? And where did this supercharged ball of matter even come from to begin with? Well, to answer that, we have to look outside of the laws of physics. We have to look outside of that which is natural. And that which is outside of that which is natural is what we would call supernatural supernatural, and now we're in the territory of God. Dr. Robert Jastrow, astronomy professor at Columbia in Dartmouth, manager of the Institute for Space Studies for 20 years, made the following co uh, comments regarding Kobe's findings and the Big Bang and all that. <coughs> um, he said, uh, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. So look, uh, just because you can't put God into a test tube doesn't mean he doesn't exist. Um, just because he can't use the five senses and scientific method to 
to prove his existence or to prove anything doesn't mean something doesn't exist. Okay, has anyone ever seen love before? Seen it? Well, no, but we all know it exists. Anyone ever uh, smelt freedom? You ever smelt it? Yeah, Tyler, July 4th. Fireworks, hot dogs on the grill, my smoker. Yeah, okay, no, that's not exactly. You, okay. No one has ever seen or smelt those such things, but we know that it's real. In the same way, there are many signs that point, compellingly so in my humble opinion, to the fact that God is behind this all. And one of them is the argument for first cause. Now, we gotta get back on track here. The point of chasing this rabbit trail, though, is to briefly say this. Don't believe the lie that science and faith cannot coexist. Because when we build that false dichotomy, we lose credibility with the lost and we lose credibility with the next generation. Second, don't believe the lie that Genesis is somehow a science book. It's not, it's a worship text. It's a theology text. And let's get to the theology. All right, I wanna look at some of the main points theologically that Genesis is making here briefly. What is the creation story telling us about God? Well, we already looked at one of them. Um, it's telling us that God did it. God did it. In the beginning, God. We could just stop right there. And those four words tell us enormous theological implications about the God behind it. It tells us about his, uh, oh, his, his eternality. Whatever that first cause is, it has to be beyond the material world, transcendent of matter, right? Whatever that first cause is, it has to be beyond time itself. We believe that first cause is God. He is eternal. My, my son asks me all the time, it's a good question. He's like, oh yeah, doc, dad, who created God? To which I'm like, no one did. Whatever that first cause is, has what we would call eternality to it. Okay, and you know, some people are like, oh, there goes the Christians with your faith again. Well, again, what takes more faith? Believing there's an intelligent designer out there that guided all this process to beauty and order and amazingness or believing that in the beginning there was nothing and nothing did something? Tell me more about this nothing. Does this nothing have a name? Because it's not nothing, it's something. Did this nothing actually do something when something came from nothing? Because if... Something came from nothing because nothing did something, then it's not nothing at all. Are you, are you following me? Okay. So, <laughs> eternality. Um, his comprehensive knowledge. I mean, call back to Christmas Eve. 20,000 species of butterflies? Come on, God. Like, you're just having fun at that point. He engineered the skeletal stru structure. Every one of us have a three billion character DNA code unique to us. He mapped out the periodic table, legislated the laws of gravity and planetary motion. Reason was his idea. Think about that one. Rest was his idea. Music was his idea. Food was his idea, praise God. It all came from his creative 
genius. He is the master creator, the chief artist, the founding father of invention. He didn't need a focus group. He didn't need a college class. He didn't need to read a how-to book. Just raw creativity emanating in the beginning from God. You know what I believe Genesis 1 is? Genesis 1 is a crash course. It's a college-level course in remedial awe, A-W-E, awe. Because you see, if you ever lose your fear of the Lord, if you ever lose your wonder in him, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and recapture it there. Second. And this one has like 2A and 2B, you know, to it here. Second thing we learned theologically from the creation story is, uh, is this. Israel's God, okay, and the creation story is structured in such a way to point to this. I'm going to show you in a second. Israel's God is superior, superior to the gods of their neighbors. Better than, different from the gods of their neighbors. This is why uh, scripture uh, oftentimes uses the, the, the label, the most high God. To talk about God. You ever, you ever, you ever read this before? He's the most high God. He's the almighty God. A perfect uh, example of this use of most high God is actually in Genesis. I think the first use is Genesis 14, 19, and then again in 20. Right. See, Israel lived in a haunted world. Today we have a bias against the supernatural, right? They did not. They saw a spirit, they saw a God, they saw a demon behind everything that happened. They believed in sorcerers and witches and demons and you know all sorts of gods. Like It was a world that's honestly hard for many of us to imagine. Now, uh, the way modern people see, there you go. The way modern people tend to, uh, to look at the world is in three, three basic categories. Uh, through universalism, you ever heard of universalism? Uh, universalism is the idea, you know, that there's a mountain and uh, God is at the top. You've got Christianity, you've got Islam, you've got Judaism, you've got Buddhism, you've got Hinduism, you've got all the things. And all of them are just paths up the same mountain and eventually we realize that all religions are basically saying the same thing, which by the way is incredibly offensive to religious people who actually know their faith because they're not, they're not. But you know, God is love, which by the way, where do you get that idea from? God is love, so you know, they all end up in the same place. Second framework is agnosticism, which is basically like, I don't know, you know, um, it might be a God, you know, pray to the universe, positive vibes, cool. Um, and then uh, the last one's atheism, atheism or antitheism, which is the idea that there is no God. Now, none of these were even thinkable, by the way, in the ancient world. They weren't even thinkable. Uh, Genesis was written 500 to 2,000 years BC. So if you want to think like Genesis, you got to grab your walking stick, pack some manna in your backpack, you know, pick up your tent and go wandering with them in the wilderness and into Canaan. And in Egypt, in the wilderness in Canaan, you'll find two basic categories for thinking about the world. Polytheism and monotheism. What's polytheism? What does poly mean? Many, right? So many gods. This was the view of most of the world then. 
Uh, they view that, okay, they believe that you got, you got Baal, you got Asherah, you got Dagon, you got Beelzebub, you got Yahweh, right? There's plenty of gods out there. And you don't have to just choose one, you can choose them all. In fact, you better make sure that you don't make any of them mad. Okay, because the gods are vindictive and angry and they'll get back. You should make sure you don't make any of them mad and make sure that you especially worship the one that helps you out with your occupation or helps you out where you live. There were certain gods of certain places or certain gods of certain occupations or times of the year. And so make sure you're always appeasing the right God, but keep them happy. You can worship them all. Polytheism, right? Now the Israelites were unique because they rejected that. They were monotheistic. They believed in one God. Let me say it like this. They worshiped one God, the real God, the most high God, the one true God, but that doesn't mean that they didn't believe there were real dark spiritual forces behind the gods of those neighboring nations. Again, they lived in a haunted, haunted world. Now, uh, in seminary class, uh, I had to take a class on ancient cosmologies. Did any of you just fall asleep when I just said the word ancient cosmology? Like, okay, so... We basically had to read in this class all of the creation stories from Israel's neighbors, their contemporaries, to see how Israel's story compared to the stories and how it interacted with them. We had to read Akkadian and Hittite and Ugaritic and Babylonian and who cares, Elonian. Like, it's just like, it's just all, we had to read them all. And um, as I read through these, uh, here's what I found about the gods of the neighboring nations. Um, they were brutal. Oh, brutal. Violent gods. Take the very worst human sins you can think of and multiply them times like 100 because that's how they rolled. Like they played too hard, they drank too much, they slept around, they were violent and gruesome. It was an X-rated show. Now with that in mind, since this is church, I thought we would read a couple. Let's read. Oh, here's, here's, there's an L for you. He was a charmer. Decapitated his daughter, killed his favorite son. Also killed his father to take his father's throne and castrated him. Okay. This is Anath. Come on. This is Anath, goddess of war. If you think the female goddesses were like nicer, Google her later. Not around your kids. Um, Here's the Enuma Elish. Enuma Elish is one of the Babylonian creation stories, maybe one of the more popular ones today. Um, here's what happens in this story. You're going to see one of the three original uh, parent gods. Oh, their names aren't in here. Um, Tiamat. Tiamat. You're going to see her uh, get murdered by Marduk, a young deity who eventually becomes the chief deity of the Babylonians. And when Marduk kills Tiamat... He uses her body, her dismembered body, to build the heavens and the earth. How delightful. In the beginning, according to the Babylonians, he split her open like a muscle into two parts. Half of her he set in place and formed the sky therewith as a roof. Then putting her head into position... Apparently he decapitated her. He thereupon formed the mountains. 
And opening the deep, which was in flood, he caused to flow from her eyes the Euphrates and the Tigris. That's just delightful bedtime reading with your kids, huh? Let's read the creation story, little Timmy. Now, here's what scholars say is a definite possibility. Um, creation stories like Enuma Elish were popular back then, very popular. And so Moses and his editorial team got together and they were like, hey, hey, these stories about the gods are popular out there. Let's write a story about our God, the one true God, the most high God, Yahweh, and show them just how much better he is. And so they wrote Genesis. Now, one of the big differentiators, there we go, um, between Israel's God and uh, the, God of the, na- the gods of the nation is that he does not create through carnage. He does not create through violence. He doesn't have rivals. In fact, he is unrivaled. He simply creates through his spoken word with ease and from his spoken word flows both goodness and order. Goodness and order. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the deep waters. And so he got into an epic battle with the chaos monster and slayed him and cut off it. No. Now the spirit of God was hovering there and God just said, let there be light. And there was light. And off we go. Now it's interesting. If you look here, uh, after God creates the heavens and the earth, if you will, the earth is not put together yet. It's like formless and empty. There's darkness covering it, deep water. Just imagine complete darkness and like, the sound of water and wind. That's what you have, right? It's a mess. It's tohu bohu. The Hebrew word tohu bohu uh, just means chaos. Which, by the way, we have an excellent episode on Preacher and the Piano Man about tohu bohu for you and your kids. And what does God do when he comes faced with the chaos monster? He speaks. And order is birthed forth. In fact, I would suggest to you the structure of the entire story is built on just showing you how ordered God created it all. Uh, this is a, um, let's see here, can we zoom it? Yeah. This is a, just a snapshot I took on my phone um, from a textbook here. That shows you how the creation days are ordered. Day one, God separates the light from the darkness. Day two, he separates the sky from the waters. Day three, he separates the dry land from the sea. And then in day four, five, and six, they all have their partners because God then populates what he separates in its accompanying day. Day four, he populates light and darkness with the functionaries, the luminaries, sun, moon, and star. He populates the sky and the waters with the bird and the sea creatures. He populates the land with animals, insects, wild animals, and the man he created. It's ordered. It's beautiful. Days one through three, he builds the Chick-fil-A. In days four through six, he hires all the delightful high schoolers who say, my pleasure, (laughs) and puts them behind the counter and on the line. That'll land it for you. (laughs) Then he wraps up day six by saying, Genesis 131, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Very good. There was evening and morning. The sixth day. Now, can we have a quick devotional moment here? Quick devotional moment. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. 
Why were the neighboring nations so brutal and vicious and violent and immoral and promiscuous? It's because they worshiped the Babylonian deities. It's because they worshiped these pagan gods. They became like what they worshiped. Now you probably don't worship El or Anoth or Dagon. I hope not. If you do, let's meet in the fireside room afterwards. But do you worship money? Well, you will become greedy. And you'll never have enough. Do you worship your body or beauty? You will always feel a little bit ugly. Insecure. Do you worship power? You'll always need to flex. Do you worship intellect? You'll always feel like a fraud. Do you worship success? You'll become a workaholic. Or do you worship the God of Genesis 1 and 2? Well, then goodness and order will flow from your life as you submit your mind and your body to his good design. Now, second piece of this, he creates goodness and order. Second piece, to show that, that the Israel's God is superior than the other gods, um, what we see is the Israelites' creation story actually elevates the status of human beings. It elevates the status of human beings. Now, again, if you were to go and read a lot of the other creation stories of the ancients, then what you'll find is that the human beings were, they're basically no more than just slaves. The gods created humans in order to serve them so that they could drink more and sleep around more and have fun more and rest more and do whatever they want to. Uh, here's back to Babylonian Genesis here. Uh, in the beginning, blood will I form and cause bone to be. Yes, I will create man. Upon him shall the services of the gods be imposed that they, the gods, may be at rest. We're disposable slaves in that creation framework. Now compare that, though, to the Judeo-Christian framework built on the doctrine of the image of God. You get something entirely different about us, huh? God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now there are a few incredibly dignifying things here. Uh, first, we get, we get the doctrine of the Imago Dei. God doesn't put his image in an idol. He doesn't invest it in an idol. By the way, do you know what an image of a God was in the ancient world anyways? It was an idol. But God tells the Israelites in the 10 commandments, you shall have no other gods. You shall have no images of me. Why? Because he already created one, them. They were supposed to be the physical representation of his power and presence in the world to image him. And what a dignifying role. This is where we get things that matter to us today, like enemy love, human rights, multi-ethnic community, forgiveness. Next, he says, what, you know? Fill the earth and govern it, govern it. This is called the cultural mandate, where he gives us our job. This is where we get things like work from. Vocation and calling, government, all things that matter. What about this one? Let's not forget it. Be fruitful and multiply. We might call this the creation mandate. We were created to create. So we get family, marriage, sex from. All these are good things, necessary things in order to build human civilization and society. Summed it up for you here. 
And in the end, after we are created, we see God cry out that now creation is very good. Now, can we have another devotional moment? And we'll end here. Take communion, get out of here. Another one of the deep longings in every human heart is this Who am I? And do I matter? Now, according to uh, the Babylonian creation myth, who are you? Well, you're a slave. Do you matter? To the extent that you can serve the gods' good ends and make them happy, but you are a disposable slave at that. Pretty sad story. But you know what's even sadder than that? Our modern secular creation myth. Because you know what it says. Who am I? Do you matter? Well, you're... You're a chance collection of atoms that came from a random chance explosion. And no, you don't matter. Purpose is an illusion. Love is an illusion. Life is the acquisition of woundedness. Basically, your family is going to wound you, even if you got a good one. You're going to get job trauma. You're going to get romantic trauma. Like your government's going to, you know, it's just, oh, then eventually Father Time is going to wound you, right? And then they're going to put you in the ground. And one day the world's going to implode or explode into a bajillion different pieces and nobody's going to remember anything you ever did. What a sad story. But hey, isn't this one of the reasons why there's an opioid crisis, there's a mental health crisis in our land and in our time? It's because people are actually wrestling down the logical implications of a without God worldview. Now, Genesis' story is better, though. The creation story is better because it reminds us that, hey, the only reason that you exist is because God wanted to. God wanted you. He didn't need to create you. He is all-sufficient and self-sufficient. Didn't need slaves to do his bidding for him. He didn't need community with you. He existed in perfect triune community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit without us. He created you because he wanted to, because he wanted you. And believe this, the very same affections he had for you on day six of creation, he still has for you today. Now, we are out of time, but can we run to Jesus on this? Can we run to him? Because uh, Jesus is how I know that God still loves you so dear, dearly. Hey, where do we find Jesus in the creation story? Do you know? Where do we find him? Anywhere we find God. Because scripture goes on to tell us, again, call back to Christmas Eve, that Jesus is the God of creation. John 1, 4, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. Apart from him, nothing was created. Colossians 1, 15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, supreme over all creation. Through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see, the things we can't see, thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities, the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Now, that's important because, you see, if God is Jesus, as you get to know Jesus, what you realize is that the defining characteristic of Jesus is not, in fact, his creative power, but it is his cross-shaped love. 
Power is what he has, but love. Love is who he is. That's why I would suggest to you today that really two things explain everything. Love and science. You want to get after the truth of everything? Well, look to Jesus, right? Because we believe Jesus is why. And we see Jesus reveal who he is through two amazing acts, through the cross and through creation. There's my very best earth for you there, okay? Both of these are different ways of getting at the truth. But they're different. And one is certainly more dominant in our God than the other. Let me illustrate it for you like this. Let's pretend for a second that my mom uh, made 15 pounds of fudge this Christmas for um, her, her grandchildren, my kids. This is based on a true story. <clears throat> 15 pounds. And let's pretend like I had that 15 pounds of fudge here on the table and the table was about to break. And you were like, why is there 15 pounds of fudge up there? Well, if we were to ask the scientists, they could tell you the elementary parts and particles and craft some sort of magical, amazing mathematic formula to explain how, how, how this fudge came about. Those are the kind of questions that science asks. How, what, when, where, right? But then let's pretend that after we talked to the scientists, we went and asked my mama, why is there 15 pounds of fudge up here? You know what she would tell you? She would say, well, it's because I love my grandbabies. She would tell us who and why. One gets at intention and motivation. The other gets at composition. Both true, but one more dominant than the others. Now, Here's what I would tell you. If, if you believe in a world without God, and this is, uh, that was fun. This is what you got. You either gotta choose, like, do I believe in God or not, okay? And if you believe in no God, this is what you got, science. And science does a great job of answering how, and you know, it's like the Big Bang, 13 billion years ago or whatever. We can look at cosmic microwave radiation and all that. But if this is what you embrace as your worldview, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you this is a sad, sad life. Here's how I know. Because you won't spend the rest of your life searching and looking and longing for science, will you? You will spend the rest of your life searching and longing for love. It's almost like you were created for it. And you were if Jesus was a part of it. So look, uh, if today you're disappointed that you missed the initial act of creation, if you wish you were there in uh, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, if you're disappointed that you didn't see the glory and the majesty of God bringing it all together, I have good news for you today. You may have missed the first creation, but you won't miss the second. See, there will be a second creation. When all things are recreated, are made new, this world, these bodies, oh, 
praise God. And not only will we see God's order and goodness flow forth that day, but we'll see his justice, we'll see his beauty, we'll see his shalom, we'll see his love and victory all at once. And we will receive the relationship that we've been longing for all along anyways. Revelation 21, 1 through 7, Then I saw heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They'll be his people. God himself will be with them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished because I'm the alpha and the omega. I was there in the beginning and guess what? I'll be there in the end. So to all, all who are thirsty, come and drink. See, Genesis 1 shows us the relationship God desires with us. Jesus' life reveals the lengths to which he'll go to have it. And Revelation 21 promises that one day we'll all have it in full. So take your communion out. I'm gonna put this verse on the board. Let's read it and reflect on it briefly. Toast to the day that he was crucified for it and toast for the day that one day he will recreate it and we will be.